Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Tuesday, March 2nd. I'm Carolina Sarasa, and these are today's headlines. As the number of dead continues to grow in the U.S., the Johnson & Johnson vaccine begins to roll out, even as experts are warning of another potential wave of infections. The Secretary of Homeland Security describing the changes coming to federal immigration policy, while President Biden had a virtual meeting with his Mexican counterparts to discuss several key issues. And the governor of New York under fire as the scandal grows over alleged incidents with several female staffers. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. we begin with breaking news. The U.S. government will announce new penalties on Russia in response to the poisoning and jailing of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. The new penalties will include sanctions on seven senior members of the Russian government, new export restrictions on items that could be used for biological agent and chemical production, and also visa restrictions. And back on Capitol Hill, with pressure mounting, the Senate is on the clock to pass President Joe Biden's COVID relief bill by the end of the week. Republicans and progressives are unhappy with portions of that legislation, but Democrats are working to get the votes they need before key benefits expire. Millions of families rely on those benefits to pay for food and rent, and those funds will expire in less than two weeks if Congress doesn't act fast. And some Democrats want the ultra-wealthy to pay to revive the economy through taxes. Pennsylvania Congressman Brendan Boyle, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Washington Congresswoman Pramila Yayapa have unveiled their so-called ultra-millionaire tax act. The plan includes a 2% annual tax on the net worth of household and trust between $50 million and $1 billion, and a total 3% tax overall on billionaires. The proposal is similar to the one Warren pitched when she was running for president. An analysis provided by lawmakers says about a one 100,000 American families will be subject to that tax, and that will raise about $3 trillion over a decade. The lawmakers say this money would pay for expanding health care, child care, and also infrastructure. Meanwhile, the fallout over the deadly Capitol Hill insurrection continues. The Senate Judiciary Committee is questioning FBI Director Christopher Wray over security failures on that day. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin. Hi, Carolina. That's right. Today was the first time the FBI has publicly talked about the insurrection on the U.S. Capitol on January 6, and it was during an audience before the Senate Judiciary Committee that FBI Director Christopher Wray said the agency continues to analyze thousands of leads in efforts to prosecute people involved in the attack. Ray opened his testimony by saying that the Bureau views the attack on January 6 as domestic terrorism, adding that the behavior from rioters was criminal and has no place in our democracy, and that tolerating the actions of those who seize the capital would make a mockery of our nation's rule of law. Take a listen. We've already identified individuals involved in the criminal behavior who 
we would put in the racially motivated violent extremists who advocate for what you would call for white supremacy. So there have been some of those individuals as well. But One of the oh. things that's happening as part of this is that as we build out the cases on the individuals when we arrest them for the violence, we're getting a richer and richer understanding of different people's motivations. But certainly, as I said, militia violent extremism, some instances of uh, racially motivated uh, violent extremism, uh, specifically advocating for the superior of the white race. As far as the report made by the FBI office in Norfolk, Virginia, that had information regarding a possible attack to the U.S. Capitol, Ray said the agency acted accordingly. And even though he didn't see the report personally on January 5th, agents notified the Capitol Police and D.C. Police verbally, by email, and through a law enforcement portal, but also said that the information was raw and couldn't be attributed to a specific individual. Ray also admitted that some insurrectionists were racially motivated, violent extremists advocating for white supremacy, and there isn't evidence to date of the involvement of anarchists, violence, extremists, or people subscribing to Antifa in connection to the attack. Ranking member Chuck Grassley, press FBI director, on the investigation into the death of Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick, Grassley said there has been conflicting reports about Sicknick's cause of death, but Ray said the agency is not at a point where they could disclose or confirm a cause of death. Director Ray added that so far they have been able to arrest 270 people involved and that the agency is always looking to develop more and better sources to combat domestic terrorism and counterterrorism threats. Live in Washington, D.C., Carolina, back to you. Thank you for that report live from Washington, D.C. And let's go to Chris Liu. He's a former senior White House aide to President Obama and is currently a senior fellow at the University of Virginia's Miller Center. Thank you so much for your time, Chris. Thank you. Let's begin with the Senate hearing. What has been your biggest takeaway so far from that meeting? Well, two takeaways. One is it highlights the danger that domestic terrorism poses to our security uh, in this country. You know, for too long, we've been focusing on people coming from overseas to do bad things here, and we've underplayed the threat from violent extremists here at home, in particularly white supremacists. So that's one thing that came out. And then I think Director Ray, secondly, very forcefully pushed back on the idea that uh, anarchists, including Antifa, uh, were behind these attacks. He was specifically asked by uh, Senator Durbin whether these were fake Trump protesters who were behind this, and uh, Director Ray said that was not the case. So I think um, it, again, highlights the risk we face, and I think it debunks some of the conspiracy theories that have been coming out of the Trump camp about what happened on January 6th. There are many questions about the FBI's intelligence and prep before the attack. Did this hearing provide more answers on that, Chris? I think a lot more needs to be looked at here. And it's not only the FBI, how they handled warnings before January 6th, but what the response coming out of the Defense Department was in terms of providing assistance to Capitol Police uh, when that those calls for help went out. You know, I think it speaks more broadly to the idea of what Speaker Pelosi has pushed, which is that we do need a bipartisan uh, commission to look at the incidents of January 6th, not just what happened that day, but what also led up to this moment. And now let's talk about the COVID relief bill. The Senate may vote in 
As soon as tomorrow, President Biden is meeting with Democrats in order to secure support. Who are the Democratic senators to look out for? I think this will be um, a, a unanimous vote by Democrat Senate Democrats um, to support this passage. They understand this is not only the president's first major legislative um, agenda item and most important, uh, but this is also critically needed at this time. You know, on March 14th, tens of millions of Americans are going to start to lose uh, access to a variety of benefits, including unemployment benefits. And so this relief is important. The big stumbling block up to this point had been the minimum wage increase, but as uh, the Senate parliamentarian has now ruled that out of order, that was a potential stumbling issue that has now been removed. So I think this will get through the Senate uh, with all Democrats supporting it. Unclear at this point whether any Republicans will support. And speaking of the minimum wage increase, we know that it will not be part of the Senate's version of the relief bill. Where does the White House go from here? I think they got another shot at this, uh, you know, when they try to move a big infrastructure bill uh, in the next couple of months. Uh, they will do that through this reconciliation process once more. That will be another opportunity to put the minimum wage on that. Uh, another option is simply to bring up a minimum wage increase for a straight up and down vote. Um, or potentially to compromise with Republicans who have said, well, you know, $15 may be too high, maybe $10, maybe $11. So I think there are going to be other possibilities down the road. And I think it's important. Uh, the minimum wage at the federal level has not been raised since July of 2009. That's the longest period of time in the nation's history. And America's workers are long overdue for a pay raise right now. Well, thank you, Chris Liu, former senior White House aide to President Barack Obama. Thank you. And meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, the Senate confirmed another pick for the Biden administration Monday. In a 64 to 33 vote, the Senate confirmed Miguel Cardona as Secretary of Education. The former public school teacher will help guide school districts to safely provide in-person instruction. These teachers' unions in some places across the country are fighting reopening plans. President Biden has promised to reopen most schools by May within his first 100 days in office. And now to New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo is facing accusations of sexual harassment, a third accuser coming forward, and now an independent investigation is underway, but many are now calling on him to step down, and Delinares has more. A third woman has come forward with accusations of sexual harassment against New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. 33-year-old Anna Ruck telling the New York Times the governor tried to kiss her at a New York City wedding reception in 2019. Ruck, who worked in the Obama administration and for President Joe Biden's 2020 campaign, was bewildered, the Times reports, and pulled away as the governor drew closer, telling the paper she was so confused and shocked and embarrassed. Ruck's allegations come after two former aides, Lindsey Boylan and Charlotte Bennett, accused the governor of sexual harassment at work. Bennett also telling her story to the New York Times, alleging that last spring, Cuomo made it clear to her he wanted to sleep with her. She alleges that the governor asked her direct questions about her sex life, whether or not she was monogamous in her relationships, whether or not she had ever slept with an older man. The 63-year-old governor releasing a statement saying in part, quote, 
I now understand that my interactions may have been insensitive or too personal. I acknowledge some of the things I have said have been misinterpreted as an unwanted flirtation. To the extent anyone felt that way, I am truly sorry about that, end quote. The governor issued a total non-apology earlier and, and in effect treated sexual harassment as some kind of laughing matter. It's not a laughing matter. It's not a joke. It's very, very serious stuff. And we need a full investigation. If it proves that these allegations are true, how, how can someone lead a state if they've done these kind of things? On Monday, New York Attorney General Letitia James announced she had received the referral for an independent investigation with subpoena power from the governor. So far, Cuomo has not responded to Ruck's allegations. We certainly believe that every woman coming forward, Charlotte, uh, Lindsay, uh, have, uh, should be treated with respect and dignity and be able to tell their story. Meanwhile, calls for Cuomo's resignation are growing. Check out this billboard that drivers can find heading into Albany, New York. Next to Cuomo's picture, the sign reads, resign now. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have released statements on the importance of an independent investigation. Pelosi calling the allegations serious and credible. And Representative Kathleen Rice now becoming the first Democratic member of Congress to call on Governor Cuomo to resign. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report. And President Joe Biden held a virtual meeting with Mexican leader Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador on Tuesday. During the conversation, Biden reaffirmed the importance of the relationship between the two nations, saying the countries are stronger together. Biden called the relationship with Mexico vital. He said he looks at Mexico as an equal and got personal in his remarks, saying he got rosary beads from Mexico City that his son, Bo Biden, was wearing when he passed away. Lopez Obrador thanked Biden and said the two countries are united not just by a shared border, but by, quote, our economies, our trade, our culture, our history, and our friendship. And back in Washington, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas accused the previous administration of completely dismantling the U.S. immigration system and said he found it in such bad shape that the country's humane immigration laws were unenforceable. Rafael Rodriguez has those details. Despite the fact that more and more migrant families are being released after being detained at the U.S. southern border, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says there is no crisis. The answer is no. Uh, I think there is a challenge at the border that we are managing. Speaking at the White House, Mayorkas added that finding an immigration system that's been dismantled by the Trump administration has made his job much harder. When I started 27 days ago, I learned that we did not have uh, the facilities available or equipped uh, to administer the humanitarian laws that our Congress passed. Mayorkas indicated that there were no staff or procedures and that it will take some time. That's something this Biden advisor is also reiterating. No es de un día para, para otro. It's not overnight. I can't give you an exact date, but it's not going to be days. It's going to be months. Secretary Mayorkas says that families separated at the border under the Trump administration will have the option of being reunited within the United States, adding that they are exploring ways to allow them to potentially stay legally. We hope they will have a choice. We will explore legal avenues, he said. 
This advisor to the president said that progress on the border will likely be seen in stages. The first phase seeks to reduce and close the MPP program, better known as the Remain in Mexico policy, and to manage migration flows. The second phase is to invest in the development of the Northern Triangle and begin to reopen the border. The final phase is immigration reform. That's something that we are already working on in parallel and that the president will introduce to Congress at the end of this month. In the meantime, Mallorca's message to undocumented immigrants is... We are not saying don't come. We are saying don't come now. Reported by Claudio Uceda in Washington, D.C., Rafael Rodriguez, U News. Thank you, Rafael, for that report. And for more on the situation along the border itself, let's go live to Pedro Rojas, who has an update from Edinburgh, Texas. Pedro. Yes, indeed. We're at the National Border Patrol Council office here in Edinburgh, Texas, with Chris Cabrera, who is the spokesperson here in the area. And Chris, let's just talk about immediately what's going on in the region. Why are we seeing these large numbers? Um, we're, we're having this pull factor where um, people have for some reason, whether it's uh, political issues or what, that people are mobilizing um, to come into the country with the belief that they're going to be released or they're going to get uh, amnesty of some sort. So it's, it's bringing people in, claiming amnesty or claiming asylum or, or seeking amnesty. And it, it's probably busier than I've ever seen it in my 20 years. Now, Chris, as you know, we are also talking about an company minors, adult, male, female, drug smuggling, all of that in compound, it's happening at the same time. Yeah, you know, it used to be that we would either get real busy from people um, coming in uh, that were trying to avoid detection or people coming in to turn themselves in to, to be released. And what we're seeing now is we're seeing both groups at the same time. So we, we can apprehend a, a group of, uh, you know, 100, 150 that are turning themselves in. Meanwhile, um, you know, 500 yards away, there's another group of 20, 25 that are trying to get away and, and, and drug smuggling going on as well. And, and when it comes to the demographics of these families, it comes from everywhere, not only Central America. We're seeing families from everywhere. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the meat of it, most of it is, is uh, Central and South America. But we are seeing people from, from China, from India, from Sri Lanka, um, from the African countries. It's coming from all over. The question that many folks are, are asking around the country is, is this situation sustainable, especially for the agents, for the processing centers, or you see in the near future something that is going to break? You know, right now it's definitely strained. We're, we're, we're straining right now. Um, uh, I don't know how much longer we can keep up this pace without more resources, without more housing. Um, so hopefully we get a hand on it before, before it busts open. I don't mean to put you on the spot, Chris, but as you know, yesterday Secretary Mallorca said that there wasn't a crisis at the border. Uh, but we are here at the region, we're in the local community. What are you seeing personally? You know, I don't know if they want to call it a crisis or not, but we definitely have a, a, a dire situation down here. It, it's, it's the busiest I've ever seen. Um, it's probably the busiest it's been in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. And it uh, doesn't look like there's any end in sight. And if we don't stop it soon, if this is not a crisis, um, we may see one soon then. You, you described to us something that was really dramatic with the faces of this minor and, and the detention center. Three years old, how old are they? How yeah, we, we've seen uh, unaccompanied, uh, unaccompanied children, you know, one, two years old, three years old. This morning I saw a three-year-old. Um, last week I had a seven-year-old boy that we found in the, out in the brush and he was by himself. And, and that's just terrible to see a, a young kid by himself at that age. You know, it's just, it's not supposed to be that way, um, to be without your parent, to be in a, in a detention facility. Um, and, and for a parent to put their child through that alone is, is just unconscionable. 
Thank you so much to Chris Cabrera to let us know what is the reality for the agents that are seen down here at the southern border while the minors and the families continue to come heavily to this region. Come back to you. Thank you, Pedro, for that live report. And now, meanwhile, in Georgia, dozens of people came to the state capitol to protest against the passage of an election reform bill that opponents refer to as a voter suppression bill. The Georgia State House passed an election reform bill that Republicans say will boost confidence on election days. But their Democratic counterparts disagree, claiming it will suppress the vote. The bill adds an ID requirement for absentee ballot requests. It also limits the number of absentee ballot drop boxes and requires drop boxes to be kept indoors and inaccessible if the building is closed. It shortens the absentee voting period and it limits weekend or early voting. And the Supreme Court will hear today a case that could weaken a key provision to the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act prohibits laws that result in racial discrimination. The dispute comes in the aftermath of former President Trump's claims of fraud during the election and inspired his supporters to storm the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to overturn that same election. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, as of February 19th, state lawmakers have carried over or introduced 253 bills with provisions that would restrict voting access in 43 states. The first doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine expected to be administered today. This as the president announces an important partnership to increase their production. Lorraine Casares has the very latest. On Tuesday, the first doses of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine making their way to thousands of Americans. Shots expected to start going into arms today. We have three highly efficacious vaccines that are safe and efficacious. That's the bottom line. The president expected to announce a strategic partnership between Merck and Johnson & Johnson. Merck dedicating two of its facilities to producing the J&J vaccine to further increase supply. Meanwhile, CNN reporting both President Trump and First Lady Melania got vaccinated in January before leaving the White House. Back in December, a White House official said Trump would not get the shot until it was recommended by the White House medical team. According to a Kaiser Family Foundation poll, Republicans are among the most hesitant to getting vaccinated, citing fears of serious side effects. The CDC is reporting about 77 million have been vaccinated so far. Almost 51 million have gotten one dose and about 25 and a half million are fully inoculated. Despite the steady progress, the director is sending out a warning saying she is very concerned about the potential of a new surge. At this level of cases with variant spreading, we stand to completely lose the hard-earned ground we have gained. These variants are a very real threat to our people and our progress. Despite the warning, the push to reopen schools continues. In Chicago, the mayor welcoming 37,000 kindergarten through fifth grade students back to school after almost a year, with thousands of sixth, seventh, and eighth graders set to return next week. In California, Governor Gavin Newsom announcing a $2 billion deal for schools to reopen by April 1st. 
We all are united around coming back safely into the schools and helping with the social emotional supports that our kids so desperately need. This as vaccinations for kids is still months away, but the CEO of BioNTech, which helped produce the Pfizer vaccine, speaking exclusively with CNN, saying it will happen this year. We have already vaccinated uh, children at the age of 12 to 15 years. Uh, we are going to start clinical trials uh, in, uh, in children of ages 5 to 11 uh, uh, years and, and in children younger than 5 years already in 2021. Uh, so this is important also, also to, to support school openings. And as information and supply and accessibility grows, so does the confidence of the American people on the COVID-19 vaccine. A new Axios Ipsos poll finding that now 68% of Americans have either gotten vaccinated or will do so as soon as they are offered the opportunity that is up significantly from December when that number was just under 50%. Back to you, Carolina. Thank you, Lorraine, for that live report. And now the FDA has authorized another at-home COVID test for emergency use. The federal agency gave the green light to quick view at-home COVID-19 tests. The nasal swab test is for someone who has symptoms of COVID-19. It can be used on patients as young as eight years old. You do not have to send out for test results. Instead, color lines on a test strip indicate if you are positive or negative, very similar to a home pregnancy test. More of you news after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And now to the story of success. Nearly a thousand girls from around the country made history last month for becoming the first female group of scouts to reach the rank of Eagle Scout. It is a major milestone for these young women, given that only 6% of all scouts achieve it. And on top of that, they were able to accomplish it in only two years. And joining me now are Sierra and Dana Roman. They are twins and part of the inaugural class of female Eagle Scouts. Thank you so much for your time, girls. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you. Congratulations for this major achievement. What does it feel like to get the Eagle rank? Let's begin with you, Sierra. Oh, it was so like surreal because we've been working towards it for like two years since girls were allowed in. And just to finally like reach this top point where like we've been working so hard and then finally it all like comes to a stop. It's like so crazy. And it's like the roles reverse because now you have to give the leadership to your own troop and get the next wave of scouts to Eagle. And how about and you, Dana? Um, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> um, I think it's really great that we were able to have this opportunity to become Eagle Scouts and I'm really happy that we were able to achieve this in two years and are able to influence the younger girls in our troop and continue kind of like our legacy forward. 
And Sierra, what are the requirements to become an Eagle Scout? So we have all these different ranks we have to go through and you have to give leadership to people in the troop through different positions. And one of the biggest things that I think Eagle Scouts are known for is what's called an Eagle Project, where we give back to the community through a leadership project. So like I did outdoor benches for a local church so that the members can have service outside during COVID. Yeah, and a part of going through those ranks is a minimum of 21 merit badges, which cover life skills like personal finance, fitness, swimming, life-saving, stuff like that. Um, and 10 of the, 11 of those are Eagle merit badges that every Eagle Scout has to get. And how did you both get interested in the Scouts in the first place? Sierra? Um, for me, well, I guess for both of us technically, because we're sisters. So we have two older brothers um, who went through this scouting journey like before us and they made it all the way to Eagle. And I think just being like the younger sisters, we wanted to be like them. So we ended up doing a lot of outdoor activities like camping and like when we were allowed in scouting, we went straight towards it because we were so interested in what they were doing. Tana, you guys are about to start thinking about college and your future. How are you hoping to apply the skills you learned in the scouts in the real world? Well, I think in scouting, you definitely learn how to be a leader for others, but also how to follow others and really know your merit, what you're worth, and be able to have a good conversation with other people. So just having those uh, communication skills, being able to talk to others is really huge for going to college and the college application process. Well, thank you so much for your time, girls. Eagle Scouts, Sierra and Dana Roman for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.